Well, this will be fun. Anyway, doesn't matter. Turn into your real, live, physical Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And also, you can have it on your phone. Just don't be playing Angry Birds. And that would be fine. And there's also pew Bibles if you don't have a Bible with you. So Ephesians chapter 2, uh, as I said, I'm not going to be preaching from this passage, but I just wanted to, to start with us here. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of my mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Underline that even in your head, that last part. By grace, you have been saved. And today we're going to be looking at, we started a new series last week about these Reformation truths, these truths that emerged from and came out of uh, the Reformation that we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of this year. Today we're looking at the second of, well, you can preach these in any order. So today we're looking at our second truth, which is salvation by grace alone. This, this passage in Ephesians is pretty much, it's one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. Uh, it speaks in the first couple of verses of our complete hopelessness before God. You And you, meaning all of us who now know Christ, you were dead in your sins. We were dead in our sins, it says, in which we once walked, and, and we were just following the course of the world. We were beholden to the world. We were under the influence of of the world and under Satan. We were under Satan and under the wrath of God. And then there's a great beam of light that shines forth after he describes the hopelessness of humanity. He says, but God, being rich in mercy and because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, in our trespasses, our God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. To be honest, that's a sermon right there, and we're done. We can go home. We were hopeless in our sins, but God, because of his great love with which he loved us, because of his great mercy, he saved us by his grace. The end. We can go home. But, I've got a problem, and, and maybe you have a problem, because this passage does not say, by grace alone, you are saved. This passage says, by grace, you have been saved. And so the, the, the problem that spurred me on all week this week was of what significance is that word alone. Why did the reformers stand and say, no, 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 it's not simply by grace that we are saved, but by grace alone that we are saved? Did they add to the Bible? Were they adding something there, or were they bringing out something that is there in this text? 
And what does it mean? What difference does that make alone? What difference does that small word make both in the Reformation and, and what difference does it really make? What difference does it make to us today? Should that still be there? And what does it matter? And so that's what we're looking at. I have one phrase to unpack today. Salvation by grace alone. If we had it up on screen, that's what you'd see. Now, there are some people, there might be some of you, who would, at, at, to stop right there, they would deny from the beginning the idea of salvation at all. Right? When we talk about, we're weird here at the church talking about salvation. Like, people outside of the church, how often in their day do they speak of salvation? They might think what's important is just what we can see, what we can experience, what's tangible, what's material, our careers and putting roof over our heads and, and food on our plates. And that's what consumes our life. We don't have to even think about this term of salvation. And this idea of salvation in and of itself is ridiculous to us. And if you're here today and that's you, I'd like to say, I'm glad you're here. Welcome. And I'm glad that either someone loves you enough to drag you here or that you love someone enough to let yourself be dragged here or a little bit of both. I'm glad you're here, even though right now you might not understand what the big de deal is with this idea and why Christians are consumed with this idea of salvation. I'm glad you're here. And what I would say to you today is, I don't know if today anything I will say, I pray that God's word will, will reveal himself to you and that, and that today you might understand, I understand what that big deal is, but if you're here today and that's you, here's what I would say and plead with you. That in your life, as you're seeking after the things of this world, I really believe that there will be part of your life where these moments of transcendence, what I mean by that is moments of, of things that are beyond you, of eternal matters, will bubble up in your life. And where you won't know what to do with them because your pursuit is the things that you can see. And so maybe you see injustice and you get really, really, really angry about that justice and about that somebody has affronted a sense of justice and right and wrong, but you might say, well, philosophically, I don't believe that there's an objective right or wrong. And you won't know what to do when that injustice, that, that fury bubbles up in you because you hear of sexual assault or you hear of rape or you hear of murder or you hear of kids getting taken and you say, ah, oh, that's wrong, and you realize that's just transcendence bubbling up in you. Because you're like, I don't believe in right and wrong, but yet I get really angry about this. Or it might be that you are watching a beautiful sunset that we have here in Ottawa, and it might see you, you see this beauty of art or something glorious and something within you bubbles up and you say, that, that is good, wow, and you say, but it's just a bunch of atoms and random particles smashing together. I shouldn't feel this way about that. And at those times, I pray that what you understand about those moments is that the Bible says that God has put eternity in our hearts, that we might see those things as pointers to him. And so if you're here today and you think this whole idea of salvation is ridiculous, I'm glad you're here and I pray that when those moments of transcendence enter into your life, you don't ignore them, you explore them. 
It, it, it might be just a, a, a feeling of general restlessness and dissatisfaction with life. One of the guys I'll talk about today, a man by the name of Augustine, said, told his story and said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in, in God. But whatever it is, those moments of transcendence, I pray that you don't ignore them. But when the moments of transcendence bubble up and it is as if God himself is speaking to you even though you don't believe in him, I pray that you'd be restless until you find your rest in him. That's the first group. The second group are people that seek to find salvation but deny that salvation is by grace. You're seeking salvation but you don't believe this idea of grace is ridiculous to you, period. This, for example, so, so, so you, you, you believe like what my dad taught me. My dad taught me he was a good, good, my dad was a good, good guy. And he taught, he's a businessman. And he taught me, he applied business principles to spiritual realities. And so he taught me that, Dan, if you want something in life, you got to work for it. And some of you believe in salvation, but you take that business principle and you apply it to your spirituality. And you say that salvation, there is salvation, but you deny, you don't even understand, or you deny that salvation is by grace. In, in the fourth century, there was a Welsh monk. His name was Pelagius. And he attended a public reading, because not a lot of people could read in those days, so he attended a public reading of the most famous theological work of all time outside of the Bible, a, a work by the name of the Confessions of St. Augustine, or Augustine, if you prefer. And this monk, this Welsh monk, was sitting, listening to uh, the Confessions of Augustine being read. And as he listened, he, became, get, he got more and more and more angry. Because Augustine had this phrase in his writings, it turns up about five times, and every time it was read, this man Pelagius got more and more and more upset about it. And the phrase that Augustine was saying was, God, command me what you will, command of me what you will, but give me, uh, give me that which you command. Command what you will, and give me what you command. You guys are like, what? <laughs> or you can flip it around. God, give me what you command me to do. So Augustine was basically saying that God gives the grace for us to do the things that he commands. And the more God commands, the more, God, please give me grace to do the things that you've commanded me to do. And as Augustine is or as, as Pelagius is hearing Augustine's teaching on this, he got furious with it. He stormed out of the reading. In fact, it said in one of the readings I took, it said he almost came to blows. He stood up and said, this is ridiculous. Pelagian and the controversy, a controversy erupted after this that, that's named after this dude, Pelagius. And he, a, a teaching uh, called Pelagianism emerged from this controversy. Pelagius taught... And he believed that although mankind had fallen, we retained enough of our initial goodness after the fall so that we could recognize and obey God by following the example of Christ. That the fall, when, 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 when humanity fell, we didn't fall in order to be spiritually dead. 
we fell in a way that, yeah, it makes life harder for us, but we still retain some of that goodness so that we can actually do what God commands us to do. In his view, sin is not something that is inward in you. Sin is just something that you do when you just choose not to do the good thing. But you should and you can choose to do the good thing. If you just tried harder, if you were just more intentional about following the commands of Christ, we could merit, we could earn our salvation. That's the teachings of Pelagius. Now, two things about this, and some of you church history guys will be interested to know. Some of you guys don't care about this Pelagius dude, but let, let me just say one thing. Number one, his teachings have been universally condemned throughout church history. Uh, you might hear some people slander the Catholic Church by referring to it as Pelagian or semi-Pelagian, insisting that this is what they teach. But they don't. They, they've consistently condemned the teachings of Pelagius and those who came after him and they've consistently maintained that salvation is by grace a free gift of God. I want to be very careful in these sermon series to not slander or not misrepresent, particularly because we're talking about these truths that come out of the Protestant Reformation. I don't want to slander or misrepresent the Catholic Church. They have consistently condemned the teachings of Pelagius. Okay? But secondly, and more importantly, I want you guys to just think right now and just note in your own heart how attractive the teachings of Pelagius are. I can think of actually five ways that Pelagianism is really attractive. And it scares me. First, it's really attractive because it flatters humanity's goodness. It, it flatters our moral character. Like, it's, it's really attractive because we want to feel like we're able to do what God requires of us to do. We, we're attractive. It attracts us because we, we think, well, you know, I'm not that bad. And we look out at people and they do good things, and we think, well, they're, they're not that bad. And, and so that's the second part. It coheres with the goodness we see in humanity. Human beings, whether they know God or they don't know God, human beings are moral creatures. And in fact, human beings at times do morally uh, commendable things. I, understand this. This is why when I, whenever I'm speaking on total depravity, this inability of us to, to fulfill God's law, I always will get the question from mainly the youth or young people. They'll say, but my atheist friends, they do good things. Right? And so Pelagianism is attractive to us because it flatters our own moral capacity, and it's attractive to us because we do see non-Christians doing things that are commendable. And we'd say if God is just, he would have to also say, yeah, those are good things. So that's the third thing. Pelagianism, to a degree, uh, it seems to, and this is how Pelagius argued, he, he said it, it defends God's justice. Because it upholds his justice and moral character because God is revealed in Scripture as God who judges justly, rewarding righteousness and punishing wickedness. It's attractive, theologically. Fourth, it's attractive because, it's attractive for churches to teach Pelagianism because it sets the goal of holiness always in front of us. Like, all right, we're a predominantly Chinese 
Asian church. And I have known many people who've come to our church or, or some of the other churches in town who said, I, I come to the church because I want my kids to be taught good moral values. You heard somebody say something like that? Maybe that's why your parents brought you to church. A Pelagianism approach is, a, is an attractive approach to us because we want to set in front of your children good moral values that they should seek after and pursue. And so Pelagianism is attractive to us because of that, because, because it sets in front of us, hey, you guys can do it, let's do it, it's good. And finally, I think it's a detractive thing in modern, no, 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 none of you guys are like, you probably never heard of your friend going, hey, I'm a Pelagius, right? Or Pelagian. But it's attractive to us, to, to us modern people because it seems that that would be a great place for common ground between the world religions, right? You, you could be very Pelagian and say, well, all religions basically teach the same thing. They teach that you should do good and, and just be moral people. And it would seem that that would be a great place for interfaith dialogue and common ground with other relations. I want us, I, I, the reason I'm doing this is not to preach Pelagianism, no. I want you guys to recognize, and myself, I need to recognize how attractive it is because it continually pops up through church history and it continually pops up in our churches today because it is so attractive. But this is the type of thing that the Apostle Paul called literally dung compared with knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And by the end of the sermon today, I hope you see that as well. So there are people who deny salvation at all. There are people who deny salvation is by grace. They want to work for it. And then there are those who teach that salvation is by grace, but not by grace alone. Now, one, one of the things that shocked me this week as I was doing a lot of reading on Reformation is that Martin Luther, while he was a Catholic monk, preached salvation by grace. He preached salvation was, quote, not because of our merits, Salvation is not because of our merits. It's given out of the pure mercy of God. That's what he taught before the Reformation. It was standard Catholic teaching in opposition to that Pelagian heresy that I was talking about before. But years later, Luther was writing to one of his opponents after the Reformation, or as the Reformation was happening. Luther was writing, and he, he wrote to one of the appointments, to his opponents, and he said, you and you alone have touched on the central core issue of all that this is whole thing has been about. You've touched on it. You've found the main point. And the main point, Luther would say later, connects it back to this idea of salvation by grace alone. Luther would say, this is it. This is the entire thing. And what's the issue? Look, the grace that Luther taught early on as a monk before this whole thing started, he taught a grace that was an enabling grace. You're going to have that word in your head, an enabling grace. Say that, enabling grace. He taught an enabling grace, a grace that helped a person to do what God required only after that person's energy was spent. He was a devotee of a man named Beale. Beale taught about 40 years. Before Luther, there may have been some overlap, but Luther was a devotee of this guy named Beale. And Beale taught that God had made a deal with us, that God had committed himself to give grace to those who did what was in them. To put it the way that we'd put it today, God made a pact 
to give grace to all the people who did their best. So, so you do your best, and then God gives you the grace to kind of push you over the edge and get you to heaven. Okay? When I read what Beale taught, I realized this was exactly what I was taught growing up about religion. And I told you before, I was nominally Catholic, so I don't know if I got any of this from the Catholic Church, because we hardly went. It may be what I got just from culture or from other people explaining to me what religion was all about. But I was taught exactly what Beale taught. I was taught, Dan, God is perfect and holy, but he understands that we're not. He understands that you're not perfect. And so do everything you can do to be a good person and then hope that God will let you in. That's what Beale taught. God has made a pact. And often when you talk to people like this, and the reason I remembered that this is the way I used to think is I had a conversation with a lady on an airplane, and she's like, well, this is kind of what I think about God. And what she said was, God and I kind of have this deal, which was funny because this guy Beale called it a pact. And they, well, God, God and I kind of got this deal. Like, he knows I'm not perfect. And I was like, man, that's exactly what I used to believe. And now... In order to avoid Pelagianism, Lutheran and his monks, brothers, taught, he, they, they taught that this initial approach to salvation was one kind of grace. This you doing everything that's in you is another kind of grace. And this kind of push you over the edge to make you into heaven, that's another kind of grace. And some of them even taught the you cooperating with God's grace is another kind of grace. And so they could still say it was all of grace. But we have to cooperate with it in order for it to do anything. And that's still the teaching of the Catholic Church today, this idea of cooperation, even though some would say even that cooperation is yet again another type of grace. But this was the precisely the problem for Luther. He was so racked with doubt and guilt as to whether he had done his best. Right? If the teaching is do your best, and then God will give you grace to push you over the edge. He, did, he was like, oh, how do I know when I've ever done my best? And this is how he, des it destroyed him. This is how he described his life, trying to do his best before God. He said, when I was a monk, I made a great effort to live according to the requirements of the monastic rule. I made the practice of confessing and reciting all my sins, but always with prior contrition. I went to confession frequently, and I performed the assigned penances faithfully. In fact, at one point, his priest said, Martin, come back when you have something to confess. Because he'd spent so much time in the confessional that his priest would be frustrated with him. He said, nevertheless, my conscience could never achieve certainty, but was always in doubt, saying, you've done this you have not done this correctly. You are not contrite enough. You admitted this in your confession. And then the longer I tried to heal my uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more uncertain, weak, and troubled I continually made it. In this way, by observing human transitions, I transgressed them even more. And by following the righteousness of the monastic order, I was never able to reach it. He goes on to say, though as a monk I lived without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I didn't love him. 
Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it's not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every calamity of the law of the Ten Commandments without having God to add pain and pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. And I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. If salvation is, after all you have done, doing your best, God will give grace, then you never know when you have done all that you can do. And it destroyed him. And some of you guys, even in your Christian life, you're saying, man, that's me. I mean, this is described in the scripture as, I know the good that I want to do, but I, I cannot find in myself an ability to do it. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And so the salvation and hope of the gospel is that salvation is by grace alone. And after that long introduction, turn with me to Luke 18. (laughs) Don't worry, my sermon is shorter than the introduction. (laughs) Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. Look in your Bible at this passage. This is amazing. We don't have it up on the screen. So look, grab a pew Bible and look it up. Luke 18. This parable we see is speaking to those religious people, those people who are seeking salvation. It's not written to those who are denying salvation. And also, in this parable, I really want you to see, this parable is written to people who see that salvation is by grace. In this parable, we find two people who believe in grace. Neither one of them denies God's active work in their lives, yet only one of the two men in the parable actually receives what he's looking for. So look at Luke 18, 9. says this, this is Jesus, speaking about Jesus. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in, himself, in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So Jesus gives this parable to humble those who would think they had attained a righteousness of their own in and of themselves and in so doing look down upon others. Here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Both religious, right? Both seekers after God, both seekers after salvation. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, The one who humbles himself will be exalted. Some really important things to see here. First, understand that the Pharisee believed in enabling grace. The Pharisee believed in enabling grace. What does he say? God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. 
And he didn't just believe in God's enabling grace to like all of humanity. He believed in God's specific enabling grace to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extorters, unjust, like this tax collector over here. He believed that God had given him something to distinguish him from others. And that thing that God gave him enabled him to be more righteous than others. And so I don't think it's unfair to say that this man believed in God's enabling grace. If you asked him, if you pressed him on it, he'd say, yes, I am who I am because God has allowed me to be it. I am who I am because God has given me something so that I can do it. But remember Luke's introduction to this parable. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So the Pharisee's belief in enabling grace did not diminish his self-righteousness. In fact, he still, though he believed in the enabling grace of God, still pointed to his own righteousness and thereby looked down upon those who deemed unrighteous. He looked to his own goodness that, yes, God gave him, but his own goodness is that which separated him from other men and fit him for salvation. Look again at the personal pronoun used again and again. I am not like other... I mean, he says, I thank you, God, and then the rest of it, it's about I. I'm not like other men. I fast. I give tithes. Yes, God, you may have enabled the initial cause... But make no doubt the Pharisees sees the work as his own, something to boast of, something to be proud of, something to be worthy of commendation or of merit. This is the gospel of cooperation. God did his part, but man, look what I have done with God's help. That's the gospel of enabling grace. Salvation is by grace, but... We believe that the hope of the gospel is that salvation is by grace alone. The tax collector trusted in what I'm going to call, and I don't have the word up here, so listen carefully, effacing grace. Not enabling grace, effacing grace. Contrast the attitude of the Pharisee with that of the tax collector who won't even approach the altar. He won't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beats his breast in sorrow and cries, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, now effacing is not a word we use a lot today. Who knows what effacing means? Who, who, who's like, I don't know what effacing means. It's okay. Raise your hand. My, my wife has raised her hand, so she's got a great vocabulary. So I'm sorry. I'm going to explain to you what effacing, if you don't like the word effacing, you can change a couple letters there and use the word erasing diminishing, pride-emptying, pride-killing grace, effacing, erasing, diminishing grace. Use the word that makes sense to you, but this is the, wor this is the word that tramples on pride and tramples on self-righteousness. It's the word of a man who comes to God's presence and says, God, I have nothing to bring you at all. I am nothing to please you. But God, please have mercy upon me, a sinner. That is effacing grace. 
It's the grace that exposes the gulf between God's holiness and our unrighteousness. A grace that kills boasting, kills pride, kills self-righteousness, and causes the sinner to cry out, I have no hope but you and you alone. I am lost without you. I am dead without you. That's Ephesians chapter 2. We are dead in our sins. But God, because of his great mercy and the love with which he loved us, has made us alive with Christ. For it is by grace that we are saved. This salvation is by grace alone. There's no other person, no other thing, no other shred of righteousness, no other means by which I, as a man, as a sinful human being, can bridge the infinite gulf unless, God, you yourself leap over it. (laughs) Unless you, God, come and meet me here, I cannot go to you. It's not that I'm just like, you're giving me a push on the swing. It's that you yourself grab me and you bring me home because I have no hope in anything I have done or anything I can do. That is the gospel and the hope of grace alone. And look what Jesus says. He says, and hear what Jesus says. He says, I tell you, this is Jesus when he's saying like, listen up, seriously, listen up. I tell you, this man went to his home justified rather than the other. This man rather than the other. This man who only called out in the hope of effacing grace, this man went to his home justified. This man who, 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 who yeah, would have taught we're saved by grace, enabling grace. This man did not go home that day justified. Only this man and not the other, went to his house justified. By grace alone we are saved, because salvation, by enabling grace, is a different gospel than the one that saves. And Jesus says the reason, here's the reason, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The facing grace alone is, I don't know what to call it, elevating grace, Exalting grace, it's the grace that lifts up. The grace that casts down is the grace that lifts up. Man, that's good news. That's good, good news. I want to just pull out the good news of that for a second. First, the good, pulling out the good news of that, first understand this gospel of a facing grace, which is our hope, is scandalous. Right? Like, This guy, who does nothing, he goes home justified before a holy God. Where this guy, who's already listed all his credentials and accomplishments, goes home no more justified at all than a Gentile or a tax, you know, right? This guy, he stands justified. We're going to look at that word next week really a lot. This man stands justified, vindicated before God, even though all he has ever done is cry out, help. He stands justified to God. He has done nothing to either evidence or add to the grace of God. He doesn't go home and suddenly like give all his money to the poor. He just goes home justified. Before anything else, before any evidence, before any outworking, he's justified before God. Why? How can this man be justified before God? Listen, the hope of the gospel is this and this alone. The hope of the gospel is this guy goes home justified because 
Jesus says so. That's it. I tell you, Jesus said, this man goes home justified rather than the other because of Jesus' statement, because of Jesus' declaration, this man is justified before God. And it's scandalous. He, if we looked at him, we'd say, no, 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 no. This guy's the good guy, Jesus. This guy's the guy who fasts. This guy's the guy who gives. This guy's the guy. Why? Why would God choose in his holiness to give grace to sinners? I don't know. It doesn't seem fair. It's a gift. It's a gift of grace. Amazing, effacing grace. Wow. Scandals. Out of that scandal, I want to point you to something so, so I don't misspeak. We believe, Protestants, we believe in the gospel that our only hope is grace alone. We, 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 this, this effacing grace is that which justifies. But we do not deny, once justified, the reality of enabling grace. Be clear about that. Contrary to the charges of some, we do not reduce God's grace to be only effacing. If we were, we would still be miserable wretches. We, we would, you would, every day, my job as a pastor would be to come and just take this baseball bat and to smack all of you and myself over the head being going lower, 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 and which would be a good thing because then we would teach you in that moment to call out to God. But here is also is the hope. When we come to God through the gospel of grace alone, this gospel of a facing grace, then after justifying, God gives also enabling grace. Because you don't just get forgiveness, you get Christ himself. And so... This gospel of effacing grace is the gospel of enabling grace. So we understand that God's grace that effaces is the grace that enables. For when one receives the gift of justification, we do not merely receive forgiveness of sins, but we receive the entirety of salvation. We receive the gospel of regeneration, becoming new creatures in Christ. We receive the grace of adoption, becoming welcomed into God's family. This is the grace of being right with God. We receive the grace of the Holy Spirit poured into our lives to transform us from the inside out. We receive the grace of a freed will that we no longer live in bondage to sin. We receive the grace of God, the word and the ordinances which are continually, through which we're continually encouraged and nourished. We receive nothing less than God himself, all things pertaining to life and godliness, becoming partakers of a divine nature. This is the enabling grace to do right that we receive once justified. The grace to be right, the grace to do right. And then, finally, Counselor David Siemens writes, many years ago I was driven to the conclusion that two major causes of emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these. The failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness, and the failure to give out that unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to other people. We read, we hear, we believe a good theology of grace, but that's not the way to live. That's not the way that we live. The good news of the gospel of grace has not penetrated our emotions. 
Augustine, at the beginning of his confessions, writes, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. See, the gospel of grace alone provides that rest. Martin Luther, on discovering the gospel of God's grace, testified, I felt that I was altogether born again. William Tyndale called it merry and glad and joyful tidings that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. This is the enabling grace to feel right. It's not that we come by God. We, we come initially by, by understanding the gulf between God's righteousness and our own, and it breaks us before him, and it effaces our pride. It erases our self-righteousness. And we come saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he justifies the repentant, and then he enables them to actually be in right relationship with God and actually perform the righteous acts that he requires and actually feel that peace and that rest that he promises in the gospel. That's that amazing, effacing, exalting, elevating grace that, 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 that we preach. And if you're here today, that's the only message to you, is to set your eyes on Christ and on his amazing grace. There is no other hope, cease, and rest from your striving to please him and rest in his amazing, effacing grace. What a message that is. What power is in that gospel. This, this, it kills and it destroys the power of perfectionism that so many of you guys, I know so many of you guys have spoken about how detrimental and damaging that gospel of perfectionism has been that you've heard. By grace alone, we are saved. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the clarity that's involved in your gospel. I thank you so much for the clarity that, that we can do nothing, nothing, nothing to earn or to merit your love. That you have, because of the great love with which you loved us, by your own mercy, you have called us to provide for us all pertaining to life and godliness in the person of your son, that he fulfilled all the law's requirements, and, and, and that by his righteousness, by his work, by his gift, we come in right relationship, and we stand in right relationship with you. We thank you it's by a word of justification out of the mouth of Jesus that we stand before you, our hope secured. And I pray for those who are in here today that they would cease trusting in themselves and in their own work in their own perfections, to try to earn your love. I pray that they would rest in you and in the hope of the gospel of grace alone. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We are going to be singing some songs of God's grace. The, song, the, 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 the truth of the Reformation that makes us sing and cry out and leap for joy, that's what we're going to be singing. Though. So man, stand and sing with us. Sing and let God's grace just warm your heart and, 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 and rest in it. You can take this time and pray. Uh, I'm going to be passing around during this time also. Uh, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be pressing around the, um, the cracker and the cup by which we, uh, we do the Lord's Supper. If you're here today,